0: All right, so Sarah Carpenter came over to our house last night as we were doing this little barbie thing with some friends, and she decided to get us all on her team for this double dog, double, triple dog, what the, the double dog, dog thon I don't know why there's three Ds when it's a double dog. she be like, "What?" Anyway, so so this is the picture they showed, right? So this is the picture they showed. That's because everybody's off the ground. This is the epic picture, though. Here, this is what was before this. But see, you got Paul and John look like they're pooping, and then and then the two Brandons right behind me—they are the ones that threw me up in the air because we're like, yeah, it's gonna be awesome. And the next one, like, I'm coming down, going, I'm gonna die. But so anyway, and see, baby Aaron—he even got up in the air too. So like, woohoo! Right? We were, we thought about doing this one where where I sat up on the pergola and you just got a shot of my feet, and everybody's like. this should win. That's all I'm saying. If I'm going to like sacrifice my old body for things like this, I should win. I really don't have any announcements to tell you about this morning. So I just get to talk about, hey, if you're new to Element, welcome. This means nothing to you whatsoever. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Great. Uh, There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today. Hopefully, explain some of the stuff we're talking about today in case you get lost. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It says Matthew chapter five, verse forty-one. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And we'll talk about what that means. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being a God who graciously rescues us as people. So often we want to run off and kind of do our own thing and not even think about who you are. But I ask through things like when we talk about stuff today, that you remind us of your great goodness and grace, that you would draw us back, that you bring us into the people that you want us to be and that we live out in this world that great goodness of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so we are doing this series at Element right now called What in the World Part 2. It's part two because at the end of last year we did part one where I answered some questions in the Bible that sometimes make me scratch my head and go, what in the world is that? Therefore, why did Jesus say or do that? And I asked you at the end of that to write down some of your what-in-the-world questions. We'd come back this year and we'd answer your what-in-the-world questions. Uh, This is week five of our Sunday morning messages answering your questions. We have 18 weeks of this total. And we're actually also going to answer 14 other questions just in blog posts on our website. Because some of them weren't long enough really for messages. We have two of those answers up. So if you've asked a question and haven't gotten your answer yet, you can look online and see if we answered it there yet. But I know you guys never go on our website. I don't know why I keep doing stuff on the website. You're like, what is this, what is this internet? I only know Facebook and Instagram. It's like, I don't know. But anyway, so you can go there. And when I told you guys to ask questions, I said, ask me about verses in the Bible. Find me a verse and say, what about this? or what is, it? And I'll answer that. And almost none of you did that. You're always like, well, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say? Like, give me a verse. See, none of you follow instructions. Yeah, anyway. So uh, the question I have today is one of those questions that was not about a verse. It's just a question. This was the question. Was Jesus a zealot? Now, you may have no idea what that even means, because we're going to talk about that today, but I've had three people ask me this question. Only one of you decided to write it down, but three of you have asked me this question. This question comes about because there was a New York Times bestseller book that came out a couple years ago, and it's called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. It is written by a guy named Reza Aslan, like uh, the C. line in C.S. Lewis's book. That's his last name. And this C.S., this, uh, this New York Times bestseller, the central premise of the book is that the Jesus that we know from the gospel accounts didn't really exist. And Jesus is really part of a militant group known as the Zealots. Now, I'm going to tell you from the outset of where we start as I have a perspective, and my perspective is I hated this book. It, drive, it just drive me crazy the whole time I was reading it because it's so biased against the historical Jesus that it seeks to destroy him on every single page. Uh, I do have a bias myself. I believe that the Bible is a truthful, historically valid collection of writings that proves that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe these claims have withstood the test of time and opposing arguments like the one presented in this book along the way. Now, Honestly, uh, I think each of us has a worldview. We all have a bias of how we interpret information that comes to us and we look at and process things that way. Uh, this is why critical thinking for us today is so important. It is so important. We must be willing to have our worldview challenged, to be able to answer hard questions when they come, but also be able to point to true evidence for real answers on the backside of it. And make no mistake, if anybody actually have read this book, is that it? Anybody know anybody read this book? It's going to be a great day for all of you. You have no idea. Well, you might run into somebody. It's, it was a New York Times bestseller. Come on. Whatever. I have a, I have, what I do is I, is I typically will read like, like a couple theology books and then a fiction book, and then I'll find something on the New York Times bestseller list, and I'll read that just so I have like a perspective of what people are reading or not reading. Eh. <laughs> whatever. I'm a reader, so whatever. You may not be. Do they have it on tape? They don't have tapes anymore. Okay, you gotta you gotta go on the internets and download it, and then you get. Di- okay, so. I tell you, uh, this, the guy that writes the book has a bias. It is clear on every single page. I had to put the book down because I was getting like an aneurysm when I was reading it because I was getting so frustrated with the book. So what I'm going to do for you today is I'm going to do uh, three things, but actually four. Number one, I'm going to answer the question, was Jesus a zealot? But on top of that, I'm going to answer three things. Uh, I'm going to tell you, number one, what a zealot was. Secondly, I'm going to talk about the horrible historicity that's in this book so you can trust the biblical account. And thirdly, I'm going to talk about who Jesus really was. Sound fair? All right. So if you haven't read it or even know what I'm talking about, hopefully by the end you will learn something. And I'm going to give you some history today, and I don't want you to feel like you're dumb. So if something goes over your head, please feel free to come and talk to me. I'll answer your questions about that. But like my first grade teacher, Miss Beetle used to say, put on your thinking caps. Here we go. Okay, Uh, Zealots were a group of people that existed before and after Jesus. They're a group that sought to overthrow the Roman government and set up what was known as a theocracy. That's where God is the king and rules over everything. They believed that if they could just get rid of all foreigners out of Israel. Now, when you read the Old Testament, God says, welcome the foreigners, love them, teach them about who I am. No, they wanted to get rid of all the foreigners, and if they could get rid of all the foreigners off of their soil, then they believe the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, would show up, and he would instigate his rule over their nation. Now, Aslan believes that Jesus was trying to set himself up as this king, and only after he died on a cross did his followers change Jesus from a revolutionary zealot to a Romanized demigod. He believes that Christians changed Jesus from a man who was simply trying to have a military thing to overthrow the Romans into a celestial being. So how this whole thing kind of comes about, 587 B.C. Jerusalem was essentially uh, besieged and destroyed by Babylon. Babylon hauls off Israelites into their country as slaves. This is a military and spiritual crisis for Israel. While in Babylon, the Israelites begin to trust God and start to follow him again there. After they're in Babylon about 50 years, Babylon is then defeated by the Persians, by a guy named Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. And under Cyrus, they start returning to Israel and to Jerusalem and things like that. But they are ruled by Persia at this time. That goes on for about two centuries until the Greeks come in. And the Greeks take out the Persians. And the Greeks now start to begin to rule under a guy named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Uh, 200 BC then, after that, the Israelites are then taken over by a Syrian king. His name is Antiochus the Great. Seems like a pattern, right? Yeah, kind of kind of so. So things got really bad under Antiochus' son, who defiled Israel's temple. He brings a pig into Israel's temple, and he sacrifices that on their altar. That is something you would never do. It's, it's something he did just to antagonize the Jews. He sets himself up in the temple as the one who was supposed to be worshipped. Uh, the Jews called this the abomination of desolation, by the way. Uh, Jerusalem went crazy, and an Israelite named Judas Maccabeus and his sons revolted they take up arms against Antiochus and they actually won no one thought they could but they did the temple then returns to the worship of the one true God it is rededicated the word dedicate is the word Hanukkah, which is we get Hanukkah from today Eventually, the descendants of the Maccabees get into some squabbles because, hey, we're descendants, we should rule. And you have all these different guys who want to rule, and so you have little civil wars starting to break out. So each of them then appeal to the new world superpower known as Rome and say, hey, would you back us? And Rome says, sure. And they came in and just took over everything. And when they took over everything, there starts to, this is greatly simplified, by the way, okay? There's like, I've got a set of books this thick that explain these 500 years. So this is, you're welcome, all right? So, anyway, so there's all these squabbles that still keep happening in the midst of this and Rome decides we need to put some, someone in Israel to oversee it. So they put in a guy named Herod. The great. I know. No one no one was very creative at this point apparently. It's just oh, I'm the great. I'm... Okay, anyway, anyway, uh, Herod is, is half Jewish, but he's fully committed to Rome. Uh, Herod would eventually rebuild the Jewish temple. This is the holiest place on earth for these people, but he does it along with a whole host of other projects. And he does this essentially by taxing Israel into poverty. At this time, people didn't like high taxes. I don't know if you can relate, but that, you know. People lost their homes, they were starving, and they were mad. Uh, In Israel, the temple was also the center of their financial life. And so all the records of debt and money and land ownership is all stored in the temple. It's kind of like the Bank of Israel. In most cities in the ancient world, you'd have lots of little temples. Israel had one temple because they had one God, and that one temple was in Jerusalem. Now, in that temple, in Jerusalem, they employed 25% of Jerusalem's residents in the temple work. But Herod runs the temple. He runs the temple. He would sell off the office of the high priest to the highest bidder. And so the temple is viewed as corrupt, as well as everybody who works in the temple are viewed as corrupt. Side note, when we talk about the Pharisees, people love the Pharisees because they were not part of the temple. And so the Zealots had started, you know, under the Maccabees, and they never went away. They're still there. And because they are all out of power at this point, they start raiding Roman caravans, and they would attack, you know, temple priests. They wanted to burn it all down, so they could build it back up again with only Israelites in charge. We we have TV shows today, like uh, there's a show called Mister Robot, and what they want to do is they want to burn down the financial system so they can rebuild it again with all the debt gone. Power to the people. Get rid of the 1%. 99. It's that kind of thing. This, It would still goes on today. So it's still it's kind of understandable what they're trying to do. Now, Reza does a really good job of explaining all of this. He does take pot shots at Jesus during the whole time. But he really does a good job of explaining all this. But his arguments when he starts getting to Jesus and he starts questioning all these things about who he is, those arguments are really not new. They have been around for about 150 years and they have been debunked about 150 years ago. But they keep coming up in new ways. He sets out in his book to show that Jesus was one of these zealots by his actions and the things that he said. And so, Reyes in his book claims New Testament writers were biased in their testimonies about Jesus, but he himself is completely unbiased. And throughout the book, he will twist biblical book order and phrases and verses and history all to fit his worldview. As an example, at the very beginning of the book, he will completely dismiss all of the Apostle Paul's writings because the Apostle Paul believes in the virgin birth, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus on the cross, and the resurrection. So what he does, one paragraph, he dismisses all of the Apostle Paul's writings. One paragraph to get rid of one of the greatest scholars of the ancient world. What in the world? See, that would... whatever okay. Now, Aslan has to do this because his arguments would not stand up to Paul's theology. And I don't want to lose you, and again, if I do, come back and talk to me afterwards. But Aslan's central premise, which is very common among liberal Bible scholars today, is that the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke took their information from an outside document known as Q. Okay, Q comes from a German word, and it means source. It means source. The Q hypothesis, what it argues, is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke may not even have known each other or Jesus, and the gospel accounts were written after 70 AD, after the fall of Jerusalem, and they were a collusion by the church to deify Jesus and fit its own theological structure. Okay, you following that? Okay, so that's, that's what they're saying. Let me tell you the biggest issue with this theory. This is it. We have thousands of documents and fragments and pieces of the Synoptic Gospels, upwards of 25,000 of them, but we do not have one shred of evidence that the Q document ever existed. Okay. Not one. What you have and how it comes about is you have a bunch of these liberal scholars saying, well, it has to exist because they won't believe that the Bible was actually put together the way the Bible says it was actually put together. Q is what is called today an unsubstantiated hypothesis. Today you can go buy a book on Q source material. I have a couple in my office. I have, I have read them. But it's not an early church document. It's a collection of overlapping sayings and stories put together by modern scholars from the gospel accounts. Start starting to be like, what? Yeah, it, it, exactly. The Q theory, in terms of biblical scholarship, it's relatively new in that. But Aslan in his book repeatedly references this Q document throughout his book as if it's something the early church could have gone and, and looked up. He speaks of how Jesus would not have labeled himself as the Messiah, or as the Anointed One. And some places Jesus pulls back from that, for good reason, if you actually read the Bible. And he states that Jesus only accepted the title when it was foisted on him by these people. He says this in chapter 11. The same is true for the early Q source material, which contains not a single Messianic statement by Jesus. That's because the Q source material was put together by these people to say what they wanted it to say. It would be funny if it wasn't so frustrating <sighs> okay truth is Jesus wasn't a zealot okay though when he did anything that resembled anything a zealot would do in the scriptures raise the ass on, he just jumps on this like when Jesus runs the money changers out of the temple he's like oh that's what a zealot would do and he points it he's like oh look at he's a zealot well, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus did that. Because though it's, I mean, they did want to reclaim the temple. At one point, Herod puts a golden eagle on top of the temple. A golden eagle is a symbol of Rome. This highly irritated the Jews at the time. It's very offensive. It would be for a liberal like seeing Donald Trump in the White House. It'd be like a conservative seeing Hillary Clinton in the White House. It'd be like saying, oh my goodness, we've got to make some laws. Got to make sure this can't ever happen again. And when Jesus takes on the title of Messiah in Greek, which is Christ, which means the anointed one, the zealots saw that as you are anointed to destroy Rome. You're anointed to kill all of our enemies. But that's not how Jesus saw or used the title. But it's how people expected him to use the title. And when he doesn't, in the end, that's one of the reasons he is crucified. Because they did not do what they expected him to do. The central claim of the book, Zealot, is that Jesus was just another wanted be, want-to-be Christ, Messiah, anointed one. There are at least 17 others that we know of before and after Jesus, and that Jesus led, leads this noble but doomed revolt, and he dies on the cross. Reza says, some people claim to believe in the resurrection by faith, but there's nothing to back it up. I think he's completely wrong, but nobody asked me the what-in-the-world question about the resurrection, so I don't get to tell you guys all about that, because there's plenty of evidence from the Bible and outside the Bible that reinforces the resurrection. But Apparently, you guys like New York Times bestsellers, so whatever. So, the time I left, I'm going to focus on a couple things in here. I want to show you how Jesus was not a political zealot, that Jesus said and did things that no zealot would ever do. First off, zealots hated tax collectors. They hated tax collectors because tax collectors are traitors to their country, and they extort money from their own people to give it to Rome. When Jesus chooses 12 disciples, one of them is a guy named Matthew. What was Matthew's occupation? Tax collector. You've never been to church before, you're like, I don't know. Oh, tax collector. Okay, tax collector, that, that's, that's what he was. No zealot would ever invite a tax collector into friendship. Matthew nine eleven. and the Pharisees saw this and said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark two fifteen. and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. In Luke 18, 9-14, Jesus tells a story about two men. They're going to the temple to worship God. One is a Pharisee, and one is a tax collector. When people hear this story, they're like, Oh, man, the Pharisee's going to be great. Oh, yeah, we're going to make fun of that tax collector. And in the end, it is the tax collector who is forgiven and loved and shown that God has redeemed him. No zealot would ever say that. Ever. Secondly, zealots hated Rome, especially their soldiers. We just did this series called Authority that we just came out of. In Matthew 8, 5 to 13, a Roman soldier comes to Jesus and asks for help. No Roman soldier would go to a zealot and ask for help. Yeah, I'll help you. Stab. That's what they would probably think about doing. The soldier shows faith in Jesus and how no one else in Israel did. A Roman soldier. This is what Jesus says about this Roman soldier in verse 10 of, of uh, Matthew chapter 8. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's what he says about a Roman soldier. And then he goes on to say that this Roman soldier is going to dine with the patriarchs of the faith in the kingdom of God while some Jews will be left outside. Those are not words a zealot would ever say. Jesus says he found the greatest faith in the nation of Israel from a non-Israelite. Third thing, in Jesus' day, Roman soldiers could conscript any person to carry their packs for the distance of one mile. Conscription is one of the reasons why the zealots wanted to kill Romans, and anybody who tried to get them to carry their pack, they would try and kill. Jesus says, Matthew five forty one, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Zealots would only carry a pack an extra mile if they had some buddies hiding out down the road, and they could jump that Roman soldier and, go, Oh, I'll go another mile, sure, let's go. Right? That's the only reason that they would do that. But Jesus says, if you're carrying a soldier's pack and you get to the end of one mile, look at the soldier and say, you look tired. It must be hard being in a country where everybody hates you. How about you let me carry your pack another mile? That's what he says. No zealot would ever say that. Jesus said on multiple occasions, things like Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He says, forgive people 70 times, 7 times. He says, turn the other cheek. Zealots wanted to kill people. Oh, you turn the cheek? Sweet, you can't see me coming. Uh, That's a zealot. Number four, think about this. You've the final confrontation where Jesus is going to be arrested by these people that come to haul him off. Peter pulls out a sword. He chops off the ear of one of those soldiers. Now, a zealot would say, oh, man, you have horrible aim. You're supposed to aim lower and take him off at the neck. That's what a zealot would say. Come on, Peter. Get with the program. You need better aim. You need to go out and... Practice on that tree over there or something. Matthew 26, 52. But Jesus says, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Then Jesus goes and he takes this ear and he heals this guy. Puts it back on his head. That's, that's my noise for healing the ear. Back on, on his head. And then Jesus says to the people coming to arrest him, Matthew 26, have you come out as against a robber? Now, zealots were considered robbers because they'd raid Roman citizenry. That's what zealots would do. So he's like, have you come out as against a zealot with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus is constantly fighting against the stigma that he was a zealot because he was the furthest thing from it. Fifthly, everyone believed that when the Anointed One, the Messiah, came, he'd be a military leader, and Jesus is always pushing back against that. Jesus stands before Pilate in his trial, and he says something that no zealot would ever say. John eighteen thirty six my kingdom is not of this world. A zealot's kingdom is all about this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. He did not teach his disciples to fight. He was always trying to get them to think of something bigger than just the nation of Israel. Look wider than your borders. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Sixthly, on the cross, Jesus is dying this brutal, bloody, agonizing death. He cries out in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do no zealot ever died with those words on their lips. They died with a lot of other words on their lips that I probably can't say in church service, but they never said, Father, forgive them. It would have been like, kill them all. Amen. That would have been been the prayer. See, it's nothing like Jesus ever said. The truth is, Jesus in the New Testament Gospels is very clearly not bent on overthrowing the Roman government or instigating a military rule. He's not a zealot revolutionary. So what Reza has to do in his book is basically say that all material in the Gospels were made up. You can't believe any of it. It was all written decades after Jesus' death. He writes this, practically every word ever written about Jesus of Nazareth, including every Gospel story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was written by people who never actually knew Jesus. That assertion is not based upon any historical evidence. It is based all upon his bias. That's all it is based upon. He actually says in his book about the gospel writers, factual accuracy was irrelevant. That's what he says. Now, this is not how the gospel writers represent themselves. This is the introduction to Luke's gospel, okay? Luke 1, 1-4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us, meaning the disciples and how they spoke and talked about Jesus and these stories, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the the things you have been taught. Why did Luke write it? So you could have certainty of the things that you have been taught. At this time, there were rules about how you would write histories, and Luke took that very seriously. It is accepted by most scholars today that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written within one generation of Jesus' death and his resurrection. That's within 40 years. Uh, we even now have fragments of the Gospel of Matthew that date to the mid-40s, so like maybe 10 to 15 years after the death and resurrection. So, I asked for a service This uh, 40 years ago, Jimmy Carter was elected president. Anybody alive for that? Some of you, right? First service, everybody. <laughs> I'll raise your <their> hand, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, also, 40 years ago, Apple II computers went on sale for the first time. Anybody? Okay. All right. All right. Uh, 48 years ago, so go back eight more years. You had a moon landing. Anybody remember moon landing? Remember? Yeah. Okay. Moon landing. I, I wasn't born for that yet, but I saw it on TV, so it must be real. Okay. Um, 50 years ago, Sergeant Pepper's came out. Huh? Yeah, okay. Sergeant Peppers and his Lonely Hearts command. man. Uh, Israel had a six-day war. Uh, interracial marriage was deemed constitutional. Muhammad Ali was stripped of his title for failure to go into the army. Anybody? Yeah, okay. So there you go. Again, first service, everybody raise their hand. My point is, eyewitnesses are around for certain things. And if you're going to start to say some things that aren't true, eyewitnesses can kind of pop a hole in that real quick. 1 Corinthians fifteen five uh, fifteen three through 8 Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. When the gospel writers wrote their accounts, there were people around who could have said, that's not true, if it was not true. See, why did most gospel writers wait to write their gospel accounts? Well, first off, they're heavily involved in starting the church. And it's a very verbal culture because writing and reproducing is not cheap and it's not easy. And so they would go around and tell these stories so people would hear them, people would know. And when people would typically write their memoirs, they'd do it later in life before they die. Do you know why? Because when you die, you can no longer write them. Thought it was easy. Okay, whatever. Um Felt flat in first service, too. They didn't even get it. He's like, what? Okay, all right, all right. It's for this reason that the gospel writers typically wait a little bit later because they're telling all these stories verbally and they sit down to write them out. Luke is the guy who starts interviewing all of these people and starts putting these things together in an orderly account so you can know the truth of what you have been taught. Richard Bachman wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a newer book and he lays all of this out. Now, Reza Aslan, in in his book, perceives first century Christians as gullible and naive and at a loss for understanding their own culture. He seems to think that early followers of Jesus weren't smart enough to figure out, like he has, that the Christ, the Messiah, could not have really been God in the flesh. At the end of the book, he actually has a section titled, God Made Flesh, where he essentially dismisses the early church beliefs as products of an uneducated mass of Jews. Now... Think about, take a step back, what he is asking you to believe. He is asking you to believe that he, who is a Muslim that lives in the 21st century, knows better than a Jew who lived in the 1st century what actually took place. He's asking you to believe that. He wants you to believe that he understands their culture better than the people who actually lived in that culture. He wants you to believe that he is more unbiased than a Jew who believes so strongly in monotheism. They would never worship a false god. That they were wrong in their worship of Jesus. And he is right. Now when a book like this comes out, a lot of people think, oh, there must be new evidence and that's why they wrote this book. No, there is no new evidence. All of these arguments came out 150 years ago, and they were all thoroughly debunked. All of these things. And honestly, Reza himself, he's not a scholar. He actually, when he wrote the book, he was teaching creative writing out of college. And it was very creative writing, by the way. <laughs> okay? When it comes down to it, as I said, all of his evidence hinges on this theoretical Q document. That the gospel writers weren't really the gospel writers. Because if you want to read a book with really good scholarship, read the one I just talked about, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a great book. It actually contains the most modern archaeological finds that have happened, all the stuff that they found up to this point. It's a great book. And I think the last thing I want to tell you about this morning is scholars have this thing that's called multiple attestations. And you're like, that's a big words. I don't know. What does that mean? Okay. Scholars will tell you when multiple sources attest to roughly the same picture of somebody or an event, when different people do that, you can usually trust what that picture looks like. And however you slice up the New Testament documents and the extra-biblical sources outside of the Bible that talk about Jesus, it reveals a picture of Jesus who loves his enemies, "...who teaches love of God and concern for the attitude of our hearts in relation to hope and forgiveness." Reza dismisses all of these things especially the things in the Bible itself and he keeps one this is the verse he uses to start his book with Matthew 10 34. do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword those are Jesus' words so he takes this and says oh look Jesus is a zealot he wants to bring a sword he wants people to fight but you have to dismiss the context of how Jesus actually says those words this is why context is always very important when you read verses in the Bible this verse comes when Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world, not to fight, but to preach the gospel, to care for the sick, to give water to those who are thirsty. Jesus starts this discourse with these words, Matthew 10:16, "Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves." Now, a zealot doesn't send his people out with that language. You'd be like, "You are wolves, you take them down, hunt as a pack, figure it out." But no, this is not military language. In the sword language that Jesus talks about, that raises the quotes, it says that they should expect threats. That his disciples should expect threats. That they may die by the sword. And Jesus goes on to say, don't cling to your life, but find your life in me. N.T. Wright once said something to the effect of that most historians, when they go looking for something in history, they usually find an image of themselves looking back at them. So what he means is someone like Reza goes looking to Jesus, and he finds exactly what he's looking to find. He wants to find a social justice warrior that wants economic equality, and he's just a dude that died on a cross. And that's not the real Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. When you take your blinders off and step into the scriptures and you read who Jesus is, you find a Jesus who calls us to surrender our lives to him who finds salvation and life alone in him. A Jesus who is so unlike us that when we see ourselves in light of who he is, it makes us examine ourselves and it makes us begin to change. Jesus shows the necessity for our sins to be forgiven because everything we touch, we destroy. But Jesus comes and he redeems and he forgives and he saves and he draws us back home again. In Jesus, God didn't come to destroy the Romans. Jesus came to save the Romans. He came to save them. Jesus pays the penalty for for the sins of the Jews and the Gentiles, for the tax collectors and the sinners, for the zealots and the pacifists, both. And he calls all of us to live a life centered in the good news of who he is. The good news is that Jesus didn't come because of the hate of God. Jesus came because of the love of God. And he comes to call us back into life again, to call us back home. That is only something God can do. And if Jesus died on the cross and that was the end, no resurrection, no eyewitnesses, as Reza says, the movement would have died then and there. 17 other movements died then and there when that happened. But this one didn't because Jesus got out of the tomb. He got out of the grave. He rose from the dead. And the resurrection breathes new life into Jesus' people and the church, and it blossoms and covers the world. Because Jesus was not a zealot, he was and he is our Savior and King. I was reading this thing a, a couple of years ago, and John Ortberg once said that no one ever nicknamed Jesus Jesus the Great. <laughs> never happened, never happened. And yet no one inspires and changes the world like Jesus did, because Jesus was God in the flesh. Today, there aren't followers of Alexander or Antiochus or Herod around, but 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, billions of people on this earth call themselves Christians. Why? Because Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our King. He is the one that came. He died for the forgiveness of our sins to restore us new life again. He is who He said He was. We can trust the historicity of the things in the Scriptures. We can trust the things that Jesus said because He is good. It's even one of the reasons why we go to communion. That's where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because Jesus didn't come as a zealot. He came as our Savior to rescue and save us from all the sin that we have committed in our lives. To take it away. To restore us to who we were always meant to be. Because our God is good and gracious and wonderful. The band's going to come up, as they do. You're welcome to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you have been in a spot in your life where you sometimes question the validity of the scriptures or something in them or a picture of Jesus, and you'd like someone to pray for you about that, they'd love to talk to you about it. If you have any questions about things I talked to you about this morning, uh, come and ask me. Someone asked me something after your last service. Uh, I'd, I'd love to, if I got time, I'd love to talk to you about it. I hope I didn't confuse you. I tried to make it as simple as possible, not because you're simple, but I'm just so you'll hopefully get it. Um, and, then, and hopefully what it does is it gives you a greater faith in who Jesus is and what he came to do because the gospel is the good news. If Jesus was a revolutionary zealot, your salvation would depend upon how hard you work for God. But our salvation depends upon the work that Jesus has done for us. It totally changes the equation. The good news is that our God came to rescue and save and redeem us. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving as part of our worship. You have that opportunity every week. Uh, there's some food in the back. Grab something to eat. Maybe get together with people this week and start talking about some of these questions maybe you had about the scriptures, or, or maybe some ways that other people have helped you to trust Jesus more, and maybe you would ask them to pray for you about something you want to trust Him more with in your life today. Because we should become a people who understand that our great God loves us that he has sought us, and then he sends us out, just like he did the disciples, on a mission. Not with swords and clubs, but to go out with the message of the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself, and he uses us as his people to do that. We are sent out. Sometimes you should expect the sword coming at you, but we are still committed to who Jesus is because of what he has first done for us. Let's pray. Thought of this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to live and walk in your ways. That we would trust you and the salvation that you have given to us. That we would understand what forgiveness really means. That we would understand what the good news truly means. That you not only died for all of our sins, but you rose from the grave to restore us to new life and prove that you are who you said you were. We ask that you would make us into a people who have a childlike faith. Not in terms of being naive, but in terms of innocence. That we would trust you like a child trusts their parents. That we would trust you for the things that you have said and done and that you would move us into the place to also be those who begin to live out and share your grace and your love and your hope with this world because you are a God who did not even come to destroy Raisa Aslan and his horrible book you also came to rescue him and so I ask that you would teach us the goodness of the gospel and how you've taught us to speak into everybody's situation around us the good news of who you are. We ask that you would teach us again to live in this childlike faith, to have our lives be those lived out of honest praise and that our love for you would be unashamed in how we live out your call in our lives. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.